Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoy this week's homily. We've been going through a series over the past month since we launched called God Of. We've been talking about a God of love, and now we're in a, a, a two-week stretch. Or we talked about a God of grace, a God of love, and now we're in a two-week stretch talking about a God of mercy. A God of mercy. And what we've been doing over the course of these weeks is we've been looking specifically at stories of Jesus, kind of rooting ourselves in the Gospels and trying to understand specifically who this God is and how he manifests himself in relationships with people, how he manifests himself in relationships to power, how he manifests himself in relationships to outcasts, and even in-casts, those that are in the in-crowd. And so that's kind of what we've been doing because we want to be a church and a community that is rooting ourselves deeply in the story of Jesus and understanding that, that his stories, his way of life, his way of living, his way of dying, how he came back from the dead and ascended into heaven, that all of those things, all of those pieces fit together to inspire us in a way that we get to live as well, that we get to live in a different kind of way, a new way of being in and on this planet, in and throughout this world. And so this morning we're talking about a God of mercy. And as, I, as I've pondered about that, the only thing I could really think of to start with was, do you remember as a kid you would play that game, Mercy? So, some people called it uncle. But you would, you would lock hands with someone. You would, you would lock hands with them. And the goal was to cause them pain. Do you remember this? Like you would, you would latch on. And, and there were a few kids in my fifth grade class that were really good at this game. But the reason why they were really good at this game was not so much because they had tremendous wrist strength, but it was because their fingers were just a little bit longer than everyone else's, and they grew their nails to obscene levels so that they could then dig those claws, those talons, into the backside of your hand as they then began to push. And you're like, ah, right? And you would then yell out, mercy. Because mercy was something that would just relieve the pain. It was about asking. You had to actually ask for mercy to be given to you. No one would ever just be like, okay, I think you've had enough. Like, they would never look at you and be like, okay. Like, it, it was about like, I'm going to cause massive and massive amounts of pain until you submit to me. That's how we seem to understand what mercy is. Mercy only happens, we only give mercy when someone has submitted to us. When they've said, oh yes, now, now I will give you mercy because you have, you have acknowledged that I am dominant, that I can win above anything and everything, that I have the power within me to cause you hurt, to cause you pain, and you now are calling out for mercy, to call out for relief. That's how we have kind of grown to understand what mercy truly is. Jesus acts in a vastly different way. And if you have your Bibles, if you want to, you can pull it up on your phone, whatever. We're going to be looking at John chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 2. And this is a, a beautiful story. And I, basically, I'm just going to walk you through this story and kind of what it looks like. But there was this story in John chapter 8 of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, okay? A woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and the Pharisees grabbed her, and they threw her in front of Jesus. 
but here's the thing. This story has all sorts of implications and all sorts of like profound questions for me as I begin to read through and try and understand this story. Because here's the thing. This is a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now, if you're a normal person, you kind of understand that adultery takes two, right? Adultery takes two people. You, you can't just commit adultery by yourself, but here's this woman who is thrown in front of Jesus all alone. So let me back up the story. I want you to just hold that intention in your head. There's just a woman in front of Jesus who has been captured by the Pharisees and thrown in front of her. Well, here's the story. Here's how it all unfolds. There's this woman who is having adultery, who is having sexual intercourse with another man. Uh, presumably, my guess would be probably another Pharisee, because this is some sort of trap that the Pharisees are trying to lay for Jesus, okay? So she is in, in the act of coitus, if you will, in a bed, in a house somewhere. And the Pharisees kind of barge in on this woman because she was caught in the act. She was actually engaging in this. Now, now here's the thing. I can only imagine this woman is absolutely terrified. Absolutely terrified. Because in the midst of a very intimate act, a very, a very intimate and, and vulnerable place, in barge these men and grab her and begin to pull her out of this bed. They're probably grabbing her by the ankles and everything that she is doing, everything that she has within her is probably grabbing at sheets or clothes, or whatever is around her to kind of cover herself up. The Pharisees grab her, they seize her, they hold her, and they begin to walk towards the temple where Jesus is teaching. This is not a short walk. To get to the temple is not a short walk, but they begin to, to parade her through the streets walking her as she clutches the sheet and whatever it is that she has on her, she's clutching this, trying to make herself as small as possible because of the shame that is being launched down upon her. As the Pharisees begin to walk their way through the city, they're wanting to catch Jesus in a trap, so they're beginning to make a scene. They're beginning to get really, really loud to kind of gather attention so that people will come out of their houses, they will come out of their shops. It makes me wonder if maybe they didn't walk her through the marketplace on the way into the temple. The places that are the most crowded so that the most people could kind of gather around her as she makes her way through the streets. I can imagine that the Pharisees were yelling out as loud as they could, adulteress, adulteress, as loud as possible. And, and because of the way in which the, the, the shame and guilt and honor culture worked within Israel at the time, people would come out and begin to yell at her as well. Yeah, boo, hiss, all sorts of people. If they're walking her through the market, I can imagine people taking stuff and just throwing them at her like pieces of fruit, tomatoes, whatever it is that they have around them, just throwing them at her, marking the sheet that she has as she kind of cowers down more and more as the Pharisees hold her tight and begin to march her through the streets. She's been caught in all of her shame. She's been caught in all of her vulnerability. And the Pharisees are here to make an example out of her. You see, the Pharisees believed 
back in the day that the only way in which the Messiah would actually come, as if there was a certain sect of Pharisees that believed this, that the only way the Messiah would ever return to redeem them as an oppressed people, the only way that would ever happen is if for a moment everyone in the nation of Israel was sinless. If they weren't committing, if there was one person in the entire nation that did not sin for a moment, then the Messiah would return which is why they cast so much shame on people who were caught in sin. It was because they wanted to shame people into submission. They wanted them to ask for mercy so that they then could see the Messiah's return. They parade her through the streets, and this big throng of people begin to form around her as they make their way into the temple, screaming and shouting, as they make their way through the merchants that sat there selling things for people going into the temple. They all begin to crowd around as Jesus was in the middle of teaching in the temple. There was already a crowd. His disciples were there listening as he was teaching. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees come up, making all this noise, making all this ruckus, making all this commotion. And they stop Jesus in his tracks. Jesus, this woman here, she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, Jesus, you know very well that the law of Moses commands us to stone such people. What do you say? What do you say? The Pharisees did not come empty-handed. I can imagine they have come ready to heap stones on this woman. Now, now stoning is a really brutal execution. They were saying that this woman should be sentenced to death because of what she has done. And the Pharisees would not have come empty-handed. They would have come with all sorts of rocks. Now, now, stoning, how it worked was people would actually take these stones and they would line a person up against a wall and they would literally chuck the stones at them as hard as they could. So, and we're not talking like rocks. We're talking stones like baseball, softball size, rocks that were big enough that when they chucked them at them, it would knock them unconscious until there were enough rocks piled upon them that they would suffocate, that they would be buried alive underneath this pile, underneath this rubble of rocks. This is the death sentence that the Pharisees are wanting to carry out onto this woman to completely bury her alive underneath the weight of rocks, and to leave a mark, to leave a symbol in the middle of the temple of her shame, of her sin, and as an example to the rest of the people, do not ever do this. But the question is, where was the man? Where was the man? If it takes two to tango and, and she is paraded in front of Jesus, where was the man? Why is it only her that is responsible? Why is it only her that should be guilty of this sin? As Jesus receives this question from the Pharisees, what should we do, Jesus? What should we do? They're holding their rocks. And Jesus bends down into the dirt. And he begins to write in the sand. We have no idea what he's writing. 
We have no clue. Like, if I were being really silly, which I like sometimes, my guess is that every so often he was playing tic-tac-toe. Right? right? He's just drawn in the sand. He makes his little crosshatch and he says, hey, Peter, come here. Come here. Let's, let's, let's play. Come on. And of course, Jesus wins every time because he's Jesus and he knows the moves that the guy's going to make before him. Right? Like, he just wins all the time. I can beat my daughter half the time. She's really good at tic-tac-toe at creating stalemates. She hasn't beat me yet. Ugh. But here's Jesus down there in the dirt, riding in the sand. Some people have said that what Jesus was probably doing, what he could have been doing, was he was actually listing out the sins of all of the Pharisees that stood before him, of all of the capital punishments that they may have engaged in over the course of the past week or month or year, as he's down there riding in the dirt. And the Pharisees are looking at him like, what gives, Jesus? Like, I thought you were a good teacher. I thought you knew what you were doing here. I thought you had this whole thing figured out. What are you doing in the sand? What are you doing? You can see him start to get a little impatient, but, you know, there's always that, that goofy guy in every group that's just kind of a, like, he just has no clue what's going on, right? Just no clue. And I can see them looking at the woman kind of tossing their rocks like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm, yep. And she is on the ground cowering, cowering, in front of Jesus, cowering in the middle. She is kind of in the middle, and this is a great picture of it. She's kind of in the middle. Of course, this is an old picture, and they've got her standing, but I don't think she would be standing. If that were me, or if that were you, I think that we would actually probably be on the ground, that we would be trying to hide our shame as much as possible for what is going on, that there is this entire crowd of people gathered around as you have been caught in the sin that you have been caught in. And here's Jesus down on the ground next to her. I think when Jesus is riding on the ground, he's sitting next to her. He's sitting with her. And while he's silent, because of who Jesus is, part of me wonders if he's not whispering something to her. It's okay. It's okay. I got this. The Pharisees are starting to get a little bit louder. Come on, Jesus. Like, voices are starting to pierce the silence more and more. Come on, Jesus. Yeah, come on, Jesus. What are you doing? Hey, hey, come on. Hey, hey, hey. They're tossing their rocks, and that one goofy guy's just looking at that woman going like, ooh, what? Right? Like, doing everything he possibly can to make her uncomfortable, to make her scared, to make her frightened, as if she wasn't frightened enough. And Jesus stands up. Jesus stands up, and he looks at the Pharisees. And as he stands, I can see him just standing there in silence for a moment as they all quiet down to hear what it is that he's going to say. And as the crowd falls silent, Jesus says, He who is without sin should cast the first stone. He looks at each and every one of them in the eye as he walks through the crowd. He who is without sin should cast the first stone. Takes a breath. And he goes back down to writing in the sand. This time I think he's writing something different. 
I kind of wonder if he's not writing, I love you. You matter. You are valued. So that the woman who is down there cowering can read it and can see. One by one, the Pharisees begin to drop their rocks. Now, these are not big rocks. Or these are not small rocks. They're big rocks that when they drop to the ground, they make a thud. 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 Over and over and over until 15, 20, 30 rocks have fallen to the ground. And the Pharisees begin to make their escape. They turn and they begin to walk away. You see, they had thought that they had set the perfect trap for Jesus. They thought that they had him in a catch-22 because here's the thing. If he had ordered them to stone the woman, he would have been guilty under Roman law, where no one was allowed to carry out a death sentence except for the Roman Empire. Jesus would have then been guilty. The Pharisees could have then seized him and taken him to the Roman authorities and said, look, this guy needs to go. You got to do something here. He needs to be imprisoned. He needs to be killed. Something. Because he has taken your place. He has taken over who you are. And the second thing, the, the, the second potential pitfall that he has is, he says, no, 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 no. Don't stone her. Don't stone her at all because... If he were to do that, he would then be violating Jewish law, the law of Moses that they came and brought these accusations with. He would have then been cast out as a person of authority, as a true teacher, and would have been left with absolutely no authority anymore. The Pharisees thought that they had set the perfect trap, and here they are dropping their stones and walking away. This woman who is sitting on the ground. Jesus is next to her. And he says, look up. Where are all your accusers? Where are they? And this woman who has been cowering this whole time, who has heard the rocks begin to fall, can probably barely believe her ears. She begins to open up her eyes. And she sees that there's no one left. The disciples are behind her. Jesus is next to her. But there's no one. There's no accuser left. Jesus, in this moment, is gazing upon her. He is locking his eyes with her to see her. And that door closes. <laughs> to see her and everything that she has and all that she is. Pope Francis, in his uh, recent book, The Church of Mercy, wrote this. He said, Do you let yourself be gazed upon by the Lord? It's a tremendous question, and it's a hard question. This woman who is there is allowing herself in all of her shame, 
in all of her guilt, in all of her sin, in this very moment, to allow Jesus to gaze upon her. Oftentimes I think that when we sit in these spaces, when we sit in these spaces of wondering and allowing God to actually gaze upon us for who we are and everything that we are, I think sometimes we, we don't want to allow it or we don't allow it because of the shame that we feel. We don't feel as if God is going to be a merciful God, but that, that what God is in turn going to do is he's actually going to cause us pain because we believe more in karma than we do in grace. We believe more that God is a reciprocal God as opposed to a God of love. That when we do something, that God will then cause an equal and opposite reaction. That we deserve, instead of grace, instead of love, instead of mercy. Frederick Buechner is one of my favorite writers, and he said, Christ's love sees us with terrible clarity and sees us as whole. Christ's love sees us with terrible clarity. As he's looking at this woman, he sees it all. And he sees her with terrible clarity. Terrible clarity. But he sees her as whole. He sees her as something else. He sees her as valuable, as one who can be and should be loved. And the same is true of us. When we let the Lord gaze upon us, He too sees us with terrible clarity. But He also sees us as whole. He bids the woman to stand up. To stand up. I imagine that he grabs her hand and pulls her up, helping her to stand up. I can imagine he grabs his own overcoat, his own cloak, and begins to wrap it around her to cover her even more than the sheet can. And as she had been drugged through the streets, as the tears streaked down her face and mud began to coagulate because of the dirt from the roads, the dirt within the temple, as her face is completely covered with mud and muck and dirt, I can imagine that Jesus wipes the tears away, begins to clean off her face. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't just gaze upon her down on the ground. He locks eyes with her. He looks deep within her eyes, deep within her heart, deep within her soul. And he sees her with terrible clarity and a profound sense of wholeness. He says, go and sin no more. He helps her to stand with dignity. He helps her to stand without any shame. And he helps her to then go forward in life in a new way, as a new person, as a new creation. Anne Lamott, in her most recent book, Hallelujah Anyway, uh, Rediscovering Mercy, said, but love reaches out and reaches out and reaches out 
It is staggering that it is always giving me another chance, another day, over and over and over, to which I would add, and over and over and over, that it never stops. That the mercy of Jesus in the midst of that space, she did not ask for mercy, but Jesus gave. We oftentimes do not ask for mercy, but Jesus gives. God gives it over and over and over, liberating us from this space of shame, of this space of guilt, and setting us forward with dignity that we may move on forward and forward and forward, over and over and over again. And every single time we stumble, every single time we fall, every single time we screw up or have a mistake or mess up again and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, because it will. Jesus offers grace and love and mercy every single day, over and over and over and over. Yesterday morning, I woke up to the news that a, a theological hero of mine had passed away, Dr. James Cohn. He's pretty remarkable man and has uh, helped me to see a lot of what I had never seen before. And, and Dr. Cohn passed away yesterday. He, he was getting up there in years, but he was a professor at the Union Theological Seminary. And he wrote a lot of different things, a lot of books that have really blown my mind to come to mind specifically, one being God of the Oppressed, and the other one is The Cross and the Lynching Tree. If there's a book that you decide you must read, uh, it's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. It will radically help you see something different about who Jesus is and his ministry and his work, not only here on earth, but his ministry and work for the oppressed. And, and so there's this quote from The Cross and the Lynching Tree to where Cohn writes this, God's salvation is a liberating event in the lives of all who are struggling for survival and dignity in a world bent on denying their humanity. Why was it only the woman? Why was it only the woman that was brought in front of Jesus? Because it was a system and a structure that was designed to treat women as less than. Women were not human, they were property. It was a great way for them to utilize a thing as a teaching mechanism, as a teaching instrument, to get their point across and to set and spring the trap. But God's love is different. God's salvation is different. It is a liberating event in the lives of all who are struggling for survival and dignity in a world bent on denying their humanity. Everything that Jesus does, everything that Jesus did, was bent on offering people their humanity, of showing them that they were valuable, that they were loved, and that they were deserving of mercy, of love, of grace, of dignity, of being seen as human. Jesus didn't just offer this woman mercy. He also offered the Pharisees mercy. 
in the midst of that space, in the midst of that conversation, Jesus also offered them mercy. Jesus didn't shame them in any way, shape, or form. He did not use the same tactics and tools that they had used on this woman to spring a trap. Jesus simply asked them a question and allowed them to walk away of their own free will. A professor at Northern Seminary in Lombard, Illinois, the Chicagoland area, wrote the other day, he said, when Jesus was drawing a line in the sand, when Jesus was actually writing in the sand, he was actually drawing a line in the sand to say that no stones should ever cross this line. He was actually erecting a barrier that they should not throw stones, that she should not receive stones, that she should receive nothing but mercy and grace, and that Jesus was actually not only erecting this, but standing in the way to be the one that would receive the stones if necessary. This is mercy. This is what Jesus does for us every single day, all the time, over and over and over and over again. This is the grace and the love and the mercy of Christ. My question for us this morning is what does that look like in your own life? Are you willing to allow God to gaze upon you, to see you with terrible clarity? and yet see you as whole? Are you allowing God to look deep within you and then to say, I love you, let's get up and let's move forward in a new way and into a new life as we accept that grace and love of Jesus over and over and over again? Are you willing to allow God to gaze upon you? And the second question is, though, for those of us who have received mercy in our lives, are we reciprocating that? Are we being a people of mercy that are giving mercy to others? Or are we doing everything that we can to help them fall into submission so that they ask for mercy? Are we giving mercy? Are we expecting submission? What does that look like in our lives? How does that play out in your own space? in your own relationships, as we look out at this world, we want to be a people, a church, a culture of grace and of love and of mercy because that's who Jesus is and that's who we are called to be as well. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we can gather together as a church and as a people new in this city. As we begin to be formed more and more by your Son, more and more by his will, by his grace, by his love. Help us, Father, to, to resemble him, to be more like him in everything that we are. Father, change us, mold us, shape us, and help us to be a people and a church of mercy. It's in your son's name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 Third Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.